I had this whole talk with Ethan Strauss a couple weeks ago on this program titled, please don't aggregate this to kind of do a semi introduction here. Um, for those who don't know, my name is Jake Fisher. I'm an NBA reporter for Bleacher Report. Very pleased today to be joined by the one and the only Trista Crick, who you can find on various platforms. But I think your your biggest, uh, I don't know, you're doing the Odyssey stuff. You're doing WFAN. See, you feel like you're doing MGM. Like any any other places to plug before before we uh, keep going here? Yeah, if you like the NBA, you can find the podcast. Uh, the heat check. I think it's just heat check with Trista Crick, wherever you find your podcast. That's probably the something that I would love people to listen to more and more. We, I had you on the pod not too long ago. You were awesome. Kind of like a kind of like NBA news. I said this to somebody the other day. I said, uh, it's like wind horses pod. If it was funny, it's like the same. <laughs> it's like this or, or funnier. Cause I think Tim McMahon's actually pretty funny. And, Wind horse is low key funny, but like it's intentionally, intentionally comedic because I think the NBA is, if you if you look at it in terms of a soap opera and in terms of a comedy show, that's kind of how I see it, but in an, oh, inf- yeah. an informed way. I like to look at the NBA as Wall Street, but in a reality TV show format. Yes, that is my that is my uh, the lens that I choose to operate on. But in that regard, we were just talking about. Before we quote unquote wet live for everyone listening on this recorded version later on, later on. Um, I, I was talking about this with Ethan Strauss a couple weeks ago. And like, I'm not really on Twitter that much, like scrolling around. Like I'm, 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 I'm there. I'm, I'm, I'm lurking. I post every now and then. Right. But I don't tweet. Right. And I'm not like getting into debates and threads and whatever, but from my limited time on there, which I really try to keep to like under 30 minutes a day. Um, it really seemed like this year's, this year's awards voting was just like super high school and like whatever the cool kids said or whatever became the coolest argument or whatever became the best narrative for that award. Like it seemed like it was a pretty much hive mind group think this like evolution of the whole conversation that honestly reminded me, I, don't, I didn't need any reminder, but it was a very nice reminder of why I don't want and have never wanted an award. Or not, not an award, a ballot, excuse me, a ballot. Yeah, I said the same thing to myself the other day after Bill Simmons got into it with Draymond Green over Jalen Green, uh, being him saying that he didn't want Jalen Green on uh, his all-rookie team. And he said all these things about Jalen Green, which, by the way, I thought was, like, pretty unfair because you don't really need to say why. You could just be, like, talking up Herb Jones and, you know, not not putting down Jalen Green. But, like, yeah. I say a lot of things about players in the context of humor, and I would hate the, to have a, a vote where the things that I joke about then become ammo for agents to call me at 2 a.m. and be like, so that's why you didn't vote for Marcus Smart. You don't think he's the heart and soul because he chucks 53s a game sometimes. So, like, <laughs> I'm very glad that I don't have to, like, vote on that because that's a level of accountability I don't want at all. Yeah, I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's a soapbox I could go on for so long. But generally, I think 
just the fact that it's become like, I, I think on one hand, it's good that there's transparency and people are turning the vote process into opportunities for content, right? You've got guys doing videos and podcasts and columns outlining why they voted this way and all that type of stuff. But it's become like, I don't know, our industry is already, and by our, I'm talking specifically about NBA media, but sports media in general, like people I know on the, on the league side of things talk about us all the time. Like a lot of us write things just to be celebrated by the NBA media community or the NFL media community rather than writing for the fans, which is what the crux of the job is, right? Right. And the awards culture has kind of been ballooned into that or whatever the correct verb is in terms of just, it's another extension of, do you have a vote is a status symbol and people will even like make, and this is no shot at anybody for doing this, but people will make an announcement and say like, Hey guys, like I'm lucky enough to have a vote now. Like this, this values, uh, this, um, this like, gives me some type of validity whatever validity. yeah it's like yeah. a validity in the space like if you don't have a vote then you're not plugged in or if you don't have a vote then your opinion in the nba space clearly isn't valuable enough or you would get a vote um and i actually think that's that couldn't be further from the truth i think like the more old school the more like i i think those people are the the more like settled in the space I would rather have just kind of like I think you do too. Would rather have my 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 toes in the community of the fan base, like as young as they get too. Like I love that TikTok has fans that are like ten, twelve years <laughs> old because they have nothing but free time. They don't even have real schoolwork at this point. They're like digging in to like they know that Kevin Love doesn't have a Weimaraner, that Kevin Love owns a Vishla. Like those are the types of fans I want to <laughs> cater to. Like, not the people who don't even know who Desmond Bain is or Xavier Tillman is. Like, I don't care about you as much as I do, like, real fans. Or or even just, like, the media. Like, it's a giant circle jerk. Another thing, too, to kind of um, – circle jerk was absolutely the word on my head that I was trying to be more creative and not using that, being that we said that a lot with Dave DeFore last week. But that is exactly what uh, – I feel like exists, but I mean, a different element of this discussion, like I've also seen on Twitter, it gets the playoffs, right? And every play, playoff season means many things, but it definitively also means that fans are going to be complaining about their coach. Fans complain about their coach all year long. They complain about rotations. They complain about minutes. They complain about playing style. But the second that the playoffs come around, everyone ought, like levels up their armchair coaching abilities and they think they know everything that should be going on. And it, it starts to actually, it does have a real, I mean, the, the discourse does have a real impact on actual decision-making and, and certain guys, certain coaches, um, you know, employment status is like, it is real. Like that's the, it's not something to be um, dismissed, but it just I've noticed it this year more than ever to go to also bring us back to the talk about um the awards voting. Like it's been become very vitriolic. Like Yeah. Like like if, if you don't if you don't have the MVP vote that someone thinks you should have like if you picked Giannis but someone thinks it should have been Jokic, like 
you're this, that, and the third because you picked Giannis. And then, you know, if if, if you think a coach is maybe, you know, deserves a little bit more credit than how the public might be thinking so. And I talk about this with assistant coach friends and G League coach friends and head coach friends all the time now. Like, anyone watching from home, even someone who's in the league who – is in a video room where their job is to break down other teams' schemes and whatnot. Like, think I think about the Rudy Gobert play on the wing with Dorian Finney-Smith in, in that game six against Dallas. Yeah. Where he got – Rudy Gobert got roasted for going to the corner and kind of having his knees banged together and get kind of, like, shoes tied together. Um, not knowing whether to rotate to the corner or to the wing with Dorian Finney-Smith. And Bojan kind of, like, didn't help him out at all. But everyone was just roasting Rudy. And, like, maybe the scheme called for Rudy to go to the corner and for Bojan to rotate. But right. because it's Rudy Gobert and he's and he's the big guy and he's often maligned in the eyes of the NBA public community and in the league, too. Like, I was talking to someone today earlier about – just call it call it xenophobia or him just being kind of big and gangly and a little awkward looking. Like a lot of NBA players don't like think Rudy Gobert is as good as his defensive impact really is. Yeah. So And you know what's interesting too is like because of the culture and we bring it back to like what people are writing for and like you're not gonna if you're a writer, <clears throat> you're not gonna say probably in the post game conference like who was supposed to rotate over there? Was that supposed to be Rudy or was that supposed to be Boyan? And, you know, break that down with them and then say, okay, well, this is where the blame lies. So we don't actually know because no one actually cares enough for to get into the weeds and the details in the post game. And then the coach, if they, if they don't want to answer, they'll just say, I need to look back at the film. You get back to me later and we inevitably never will. So it's it's hard to really know what what things are real and what things are not, and what criticism is valid and which ones aren't. And you know, to your point, I've been thinking a lot about Utah as we go along, and it was this series that I realized that you know maybe I've been unfair to Rudy this whole time, and that maybe Donovan deserves more blame than I ever thought he deserved. And that probably happened not just the series, but also in the course of, of the regular season where. You know, the stat comes out at how often Donovan will pass the ball in general, not assist, but pass the ball in general to Rudy. And then you start watching for Rudy diving to the hoop, sort of open with his arm up, like waving and Donovan looking him kind of off and you being like, oh, wow, like he really is not fucking with him at all. Like, like, oh, OK. Yeah, I mean, the numbers don't lie. Um, and I'm definitely someone who... I will snicker sometimes. Well, I did in the past um, when pre-pandemic, when it'd be at a coach's scrum. Uh, for those who don't know, which I would assume is anyone not in the NBA media who's listening, um, pre-pandemic, and I think pre- it's pretty close to normal now, but the way media availability works typically for the coach's sides, pre-game, the home coach talks um, 75 minutes before tip-off. Um, or the the road coach does, and then the home coach talks sixty minutes before tip off, and or, or, or I mean, no, I'm blank, I'm blanking on the correct, whatever it is. They talk like 
15 minutes apart pregame. Right. Um, and it's on the schedule. And then the locker room was open between 75 and 45 minutes before tip-off. And then it closed. And then everyone kind of went back to their own thing. Um, but when you're standing, you're basically standing in these, like, in certain arenas, you're standing in very tiny back hallways while a coach is standing up behind that nice backdrop with Bally Sports or Fox Sports or NBC, whatever. And it looks like it's a nice big press conference setting, but it's not. So you're standing there wedged in like sardines, and you can tell when someone is presenting a question just by looking at, at the data. Like they just logged on to Synergy or Basketball Reference and picked a stat and asked the coach about it. But when you pair that, and when when you when you to me the best approach for analysis with advanced metrics is by taking your eye test and seeing if the data supports it. Yeah. And in, in the case of the Donovan Rudy thing, like watching them play before that became such a story and before I had seen the numbers, like I definitely started to notice that really Rudy only caught lobs from Mike Conley. And then yeah. once the once the data got pointed out to me and I was watching even closer, I really was sitting there shaking my head like, holy shit, this guy does not even look at look at him at all. It really it was a real thing. And it's it's obviously a big reason why everyone around the league i mean i literally had two people in the nba text me today saying are you writing my utah for next week like today because they're just that much of a hot button issue right now you know i heard this uh, this is like a kind of a non sequitur but i i wanted to get your if you know anything if you know it's true or if you don't so i right. i i heard i want to say last weekend and i know quinn snyder has been when we talk about like are coaches good or bad? Coaches that are well-regarded, are they better or worse than, you know, people, like, I guess the popular opinion says. I think Quinn mm-hmm. Snyder is seen as, like, a very good coach um, in league, yeah. like, league-wide. People would consider him to be, like, you know, top 10%, top 5% coaches in the league. Um, highly, highly uh, coveted across the league for all these different big jobs. I would say that's fair. Uh, I heard that he has seating assignments on the bus and the seating assignments correspond to your p- performance on the court. And the better you play, the, the further you move up on the bus. I would love to know if that's true or if you've ever <laughs> heard this before, because I think that that could possibly work temporarily on a on a team like Brooklyn before KD and Kyrie, when it was like D'Lo and like the Kenny Atkinson days, or even in a place like Utah early before Donovan's a real star, but like in a place like LA that would never fly. Uh, And like, there's also like something problematic about buses and like where people sit. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, so what I will say is I have not heard that exact thing, but especially in the context of the Lakers, when you talk to people who have worked with Quinn, who work with Quinn presently, um, who know him in certain uh, aspects, they all talk about how he's very detail-oriented. Some people have gone as far as to describe him as a, as a type A personality who – um, you know, likes to kind of be pretty involved and hands-on in structure and organization of how things are run there. I have heard that he, that that type A-ness and wanting for order and structure does translate to some type of seating arrangement on 
I was told team flights. So the bus, maybe that, I don't know. Cause also the bus is different too. Like to go back to the schedule that we were talking about earlier, teams typically travel in two buses, first bus, second bus. Um, and that's like, usually the rookies are the ones it's like rookies and guys who like have their pregame routine who just like need to get to the arena, like a JJ Redick type. I don't know for a fact, please don't quote me that JJ Redick was the first bus guy, but I'm like 98% sure he would be one of those guys. Like Ray Allen was definitely a first bus guy. Um, so like that's typically like player preference and also every coach, um, who works out a player pregame, who works out players at practices, like they all typically have one or two guys. So the routine, like if you go into a locker room, which shout out NBA league office, haven't been able to do that in a couple of years and uh, would love for that uh, to happen sometime soon. I understand the sensitivity of the issue, but a lot of benefit to being in there. Um, when you go in those locker rooms, um, a lot of them will have on the whiteboard, like to the minute, like every 10 to 15 minutes, like this player works out pregame on the court with this guy. So they're like very, cause there's only, there's a limited amount of time. Like if you get to the, if you get to the arena, like two ish hours before tip off or three hours before tip off. And you have, I mean, now sometimes with these two way players, teams got 17 guys there, like to warm them all up pregame you really do have to organize it. So maybe on the bus going before pregame, there is that type of thing there. I don't know that, but I have heard that there is some type of seating chart organization on the flights. I definitely have heard that. Yeah, We know definitely that Donovan and and Rudy are not uh, assigned seated next to one another. (laughs) Well, I mean, the way people talk about Donovan Mitchell's influence on the Utah Jazz is that he kind of can assign people if he wanted to. Like, right? He's got. I mean, I was talking to someone over the weekend, um, which I might be uh, sacrificing too much information for a later Bleacher Report story. But anyway, um, trying to kind of figure out a little bit about the order of operations there and the top of the decision tree from Ryan Smith, the owner on down, because certain people in the league who just like, listen, there's a lot of gullible people who work for teams who just take the most slanderous sensational narrative and run with it. Like there's the, there's, there's one thought that Danny Ainge is kicking down the door, busting through the wall, like the Kool-Aid man taking over everything, (laughs) saying barking orders. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. We're going to do that. Um, but my my real sense is what what is going on in Utah is that Ryan Smith, the owner, has been taking a lot of counsel from certain figures, just like every owner does, right? Typically, it's just the GM who's the number one person that that owner talks to. Like, I remember talking – I remember I did a story a couple years ago for the Washington Post between my SI and Bleacher Report tenures. Um, about the importance of executive titles now in the NBA, whether you're a president or executive vice president or a GM and all that type of stuff, which sounds like nonsense, but to go back to the NBA is Wall Street, but a reality TV, like the titles do matter, especially when it gets in terms of like being hired away from other teams. Um, And um, I remember 
Tommy Shepard, who I is the Wizards GM, who I talked to for that story, said something to the effect of like he's just the GM, like where other he's number one now. So like other other people in other positions, like Daryl Morey in Philly is the president of basketball operations. Tommy Shepard said to me for that story, you know, doesn't really matter as long as I'm right right underneath the owner. As long as he's 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 who I directly report to, I'm good. So with Ryan Smith, like Danny was. This is again how it's been described to me. Danny um, was someone that he was just close with and playing golf with. I mean, some people say they're best friends. I wouldn't. I don't. I wouldn't be able to characterize that uh, to so, so so definitively. But they're definitely very close by all accounts. And um, he was someone that Ryan was going to for counsel, regardless. And then it became to the point where, you know, if you're going to be doing this so much, at least bring me on in some official capacity. And then, honestly, after Danny, from my understanding, I mean, Donovan Mitchell's people, from his agent, Ty Sullivan, uh, to other actors, um, they're kind of the, the, the number two party in terms of most influential with Ryan's ear. So, And then I think Quinn is third, um, or the Quinn, Justin Zanuck, however you want to order it. Um, so that's, I don't know, that's some, that's some data for you. <laughs> that's that's absolutely to me. I know that this is like for folks who are just kind of casual fans, maybe not nearly as interested, but the way that the sausage is made in any NBA team matters in terms of, I think, the culture, in terms of the viability for who ends up getting traded, who ends up coming in, and like the possibility of success. And also, like, you know, it seems like when I'm thinking about maybe Donovan asking out or you know, him saying, I need a week before I decide what my future is going to be in Utah. You're thinking to yourself, okay, is he also weighing with his people wherever the next place that he may or may not go? Will his people have that level of control over the process? And how important is that to them? Yeah, I mean, again, in the spirit of the show title, I'm not saying this is happening, but I would imagine if those conversations were being had being talked to weighing whether or not to to look elsewhere or looking elsewhere to see if there's anything that really would prompt you to want to request a trade like i mean those conversations are not just happening internally they're happening with people at those teams like that's just how this game works i mean tampering is alive and well in the nba i'm sorry for anyone in the league office listening who would not want me to say that but look i mean ask anyone with brooklyn about the james harden deal and they will kind of roll their eyes and talk about certain i mean if you get if you, if you give them a beer and you're shooting the shit off the record you will probably hear some pretty uh pretty eye-opening stories ac- ac- accusations i would say <laughs> about potentially what Sixers figures may have promised and offered behind the scenes to get that deal done, right? I mean, that happens all the time. I mean, going back to Kawhi Leonard with Uncle Dennis and the Clippers, right? Like, yep. there's there's plenty of allegory out there to suggest that Kawhi did not just sign a maximum contract and there were other things involved. So, Fringe yeah. benefits. Same situation also. You know, it was weird, actually. There was a story about Josai last year about all of the things that um, were included uh, to be a net, all of the 
additional compensation that you get as a net. I think there was like hotel rooms and food and like all kinds of, I would just say like things you would normally pay for out of pocket that like a condo in New York that was basically theirs to use however, whenever and what capacity they wanted. And then that article just like disappeared. Like I haven't been able to find it. I almost feel crazy because I know I read it. And now it's gone for doing the Howard Megdahl who wrote it for Sports Illustrated had that great reporting about how he got fined for flying the, um, the Liberty off to Napa as well. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I think that that's, there's certain markets that those fringe benefits are, you know, important. I don't, I don't know how many fringe benefits you're getting in Utah. I'm not, I'm besides outside of like maybe ownership. Or... Well, look, I mean, I wrote about this a while ago. Preseason, I talked about the Donovan Mitchell equation with the Jazz being that. And clearly the Knicks, who are operated by a handful of former CAA representatives and their coaches represented by CAA, and they brought on Gerson Rosas to some type of nebulous role that has become a source of conversation in league circles who was represented by CAA. Like, clearly they have interest in pursuing Donovan. So, I mean, interest in or, or they currently are, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's just to, 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 to know that and to value him like that, like, the Jazz are going to and have done things like trade for Eric Pascal, his, one of his best friends from his youth. And they had training camp in Las Vegas because Donovan won that training camp in Las Vegas. So those things have been happening and are happening. They fired the trainer for after that dispute about his ankle um, in last year's playoffs. So um, he's been he's been valued as that type of guy for a long time. And I think that is going to be important context here, like you were saying, to consider um, when we consider the discussion about his imminent future. Um, Charlie, do we have our first call ready to rock here? No, Charlie just left the queue. Charlie, come back. There he is. Charlie damn, but, damn buttons got me flummoxed over here. How's it going today? Hey, what's good, up, man? Charlie? How are you? Good. Um, you know, in regards to your uh, conversation about Ainge and Gobert and Mitchell in Utah, I had kind of half remembered this article from when I was a kid um, about Danny Ainge being into brain typing. And I went back. I'm going to read you a quote here from 20 years ago (laughs) from Danny Ainge. You can take Red Auerbach, Jerry West, Phil Jackson. I'd take Jim Neednagle. Um, And I did. So Jim Neednagle was this like brain typing uh doctor and 20 years on with what we know about the brain it's really kind of like some gobbledygook pseudoscience type thing but Ainge was really into it um and it kind of got me wondering like what percentage of team building do front office people put into just like hey man the basketball it's a basketball fit the money works but if these two dudes are together like the the chemistry is going to be so bad to the point where it's gonna like is that how much does that factor into stuff and do people still do brain typing like is Ainge still into that kind of stuff before i answer trista charlie asked us last week which um rival team would other teams 
if they could get a full CIA, FBI, wiretap, document seizure, whatever, <laughs> to just get under their hood, who would it be? So we, we really value Charlie's questions on this. This story. is, like, so one, cool. Um, I'm, I'm l- looking into this, like, Carl Young, Myers-Briggs, like, combo that he did. Um, so, yeah, just just an- go ahead and answer that, Jake, because I, I don't know the answer to this. So I can't speak to – today and how he wants to implement that type of thinking with the jazz. But yeah, when Danny was in Boston, they, there was a lot of talk. Um, Eric Weiss, I don't know what his program is called off the top of my head, but the, the Celtics valued, I'm doing a search on Twitter right now, sports aptitude, is that what it was called? Um, it seems Eric Weiss on Twitter. Um, he has this kind of like, mental kind of like a NBA version of the wonder lip, I guess that um, I believe either the Celtics subscribed to or a lot of teams subscribed to and the Celtics just mostly valued it or valued it more than others. Or Eric was based in, in Boston, whatever it was. Um, Kevin O'Connor actually, um, Kevin and I kind of came up together going to Celtics games when I was at school at Northeastern. Um, and he was there doing a bunch of different like local things. He was he was a kind of like a draft analyst guy for the, the content arm of Eric's stuff. For a little fun fact there, um, and I remember like Terry Rozier was a pick for the Celtics for many reasons, but one of them was definitely how much Boston valued his his mental makeup. And like a lot of teams do give you like kind of psych evaluation questionnaire type thing. And I remember. In the 2018 draft, if, if I remember correctly, if that was Luca's draft, um, the Kings were really impressed by Michael Porter's um, responses. That was like a real reason why they were considering him at two when they ended up taking uh, Marvin Bagley. Because um, like Michael Porter had a lot of intel. And I say this as someone who I'm a big fan of Michael Porter. Um uh, not just on the court. I've had a couple conversations with the guy. I think he is a kid who does definitely mean well. And uh, but he just like very cocky guy, and like yeah, that, could be, that can be received very poorly amongst certain teams and, and certain intel receptions. But like whatever his formula and his questions gave Sacramento, it was like this guy has the confidence that will absolutely lead into success. Like that type of different lens on the confidence. So. Teams do value that stuff, and whether it's, like, systematic and formulaic or it's just compiling a lot of intel, like, there are a ton of scouts in the league who don't have, like, that much of a valued basketball acumen, let's say, but they're there for their connections to be able to get the information and the perspective of a college player from – their middle school guidance counselor all the way up to their college head coach with the student managers and, you know, AAU coaches and teammates along the way. So teams absolutely try to understand the person as much as the player, because you're investing millions of dollars. Oftentimes if you're picking them in the top five, they're on a track to be paid $200 million like over the course of their first, you know, seven years in the league. And a 19-year-old kid. So their teams definitely are doing everything they can to try to see what kind of goes on between the ears and in their heart to, to make sure they're someone they want to go to, to business with. 
And same thing, I think, happens a lot, uh, Jake and Charlie and everyone listening, with brands. Like, I was definitely something I noticed when I worked at Nike. And I knew Nico, uh, Nico, um, who's now the GM of the Mavericks. And, and like, that was a thing that I was told that, you know, all of the basketball guys on the brand side are doing the exact same thing that, uh, you know, the not minions, but the people uh, underneath GMs are doing on the team side to find out, you know, how much can we invest and what is this person's upside? Not from just like a basketball perspective, but, you know, where are the potential holes? Like, where are the risks? And like, how big can this player and person be as a brand? And just to, yeah. just to follow up, that's, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Like, have either of you two ever heard of um, either a trade being nixed or a free agent, like, not being signed because a team just figures, like, this dude is just not going to mesh with someone on our roster personality-wise the way Gobert and Mitchell seem to not be able to coexist? Definitely. I mean, it mostly comes up in the draft, honestly. Um, and a lot of guys will fall. Um, it, it's difficult from a reporter's perspective because a lot of the guys fall sometimes for information that's like super sensitive that can be pretty damaging and you don't really necessarily know why they're falling, but you're pretty sure why because everyone in the league is saying it's because of X, Y, and Z. It's like difficult to share because it could be, you know, pretty debilitating for someone's uh, overall life, honestly. Um, but I mean, yeah, like I would say, I don't want to name any names. I was going to get, but it happens every year in the draft for sure. And like, even on a less severe scale, like the Sixers a couple years back, they straight up chose Jimmy Butler, Ben Simmons over Jimmy Butler. Like that was a real risk. Yeah. Um, and I think. And Tobias Harris, right, Jake? Like, I think it was, from what I understand, it was Tobias and Ben that were almost aligned against Jimmy. I don't remember the Tobias aspect of it so clearly off the top of my head, to be honest. Um, but because then he ended I, up getting the extension, and Jimmy didn't. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I from what I know, Tobias's approach very different from, from Jimmy Butler's. Yeah, so it definitely happens, um, and I think there are guys who. Like, I wouldn't think in free agency, like, I wouldn't think it goes, and thank you as always, Charlie, for the questions. Keep coming back, man. Um, I would think it's more about, like, teams don't just go contact seven point guards on, if they need a point guard on July 1 of free agency, right? They're in contact a little bit beforehand, but also they're doing, I mean, teams that aren't in the playoffs anymore are starting to meet with their scouts and their overall personnel departments now to try to come up with their game plans for the off season and what they're ultimately hoping to target. And they're preparing for agent acquisitions and, 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 you know, guys they want to go after. And like, there will, there will be guys who fall out of that initial round of data collecting, if you will, um, after some of that data doesn't necessarily prove to be um, something that the team thinks will mesh with their group of guys. Yeah. Speaking of culture and <laughs> meshing, I want to talk Mark Jackson. It's like all I want to talk about with you really fast. Let's do it. Let's we do can it. get, we can move on from it, but like, man, is there a lot here? Um, first and foremost, 
is Mark Jackson to you one of the more polarizing coaches in terms of people believing he's either would have won a ring with the Golden State anyway and was responsible for the development of those guys in a way that Steve Kerr was not? And then on the other end, people saying absolutely Golden State would not have won a ring and what he was doing was detrimental based on like his belief system and and he should never coach again. I feel like Mark's kind of like the way that people see it. I don't see it on either one of those things like exactly. And sometimes I kind of swing one way or the other, depending on new information or just like, I don't know, just the day to day, like just kind of your thoughts on, on him as a coach, like what's real, what's not real. And like, where's the nuance there? Yeah. Um, First, you know, I like to ask my guests if they have any questions for me at the end. You're always so good at peppering them through throughout. So I appreciate it as always. Um, you know, I think polarizing is a great word because it's a word that gets misused a lot in our culture today by not, not, not to be Miriam Webster, but like the true definition of polarizing means that you're either on one pole or the other, you're either all the way in or all the way out, right? And Mark really does seem to be that type of candidate, coach. I don't want to say person because um, I, I think, think he's an awesome person. I think everybody who comes in contact with him as a person really likes him. But as a head coach in the NBA, I think very polarizing. So, look, like with all the stories that are out there, like I remember reading just yesterday, um, there was something about Mark Jackson taking Stephen Curry right after he – uh, sprained an ankle in the playoffs or something to his church, and they like put holy, put holy water on it. on it. Yeah, like there's those stories, and there's the stuff with Brian Scalabrini and Darren Ehrman for recording him for his stuff, and the us against them with the coach and the players versus the front office, and what have you, and being very uh, kind of like my way or the highway type of leader and you know, always re- kind of refusing to hire better assistants at the urging of um, ownership and other management levels, because, you know, from one vantage point, you know, it just seemed out of a bit of fear that maybe he's be hiring his replacement. Right. Which, you know, does happen in the league. Like let's be fair when the Lakers brought in Jason Kidd first and then David Fisdale this year, like a lot of people are like, Oh, there's Frank Vogel's replacement. And like, if Fizdale had a better run, I think, um, as the interim head coach or whatever the terminology was with COVID, um, when Vogel went out, it was like a five-game sample, whatever it was. Um, if if they went like five and zero in that in that situation, like I think that could have been Fizdale's job. Um, but like when I called Warriors people last week and yesterday before I wrote the story about the King search, and um, I mean it definitely. I mean, I had another call today from someone involved in that search, let's say, um, after the story came out, who again said, you know, it seems to be pretty clear that Mark Jackson from these Golden State ties um, is Vivek Ranadive's preference for the job and the way the Kings have operated in the last um, nine years since Vivek bought the team in May 2013. Like typically what he's wanted is, is what's flown. Um, so a lot of people on the NBA are, are characterizing Mark Jackson as, as the front runner for that job. I mean, it could, it could change. Like it could be as uh, these, either of these other two finalists, depending on what happens here. I mean, they haven't met with Mark Jackson and um, 
Mike Brown for a second time yet. They've only met Steve Clifford. But, you know, when I called these Warriors folks, I was expecting them to kind of give that type of, on the other side of the pole, the anti-Mark Jackson kind of takes being everything we just said. And there was a lot of positivity from a lot of those Warriors people I talked to. Um, yeah. Talking about how, you know, if you do want someone who's going to be a strong voice and, you know, he's a preacher, right? If you want someone who's going to be giving you great pregame pep talks and being a strong leader in terms of like the culture outwardly, like the coach is the most recognizable voice of an NBA team. They speak at every day of practice. They speak before and after every single game. They're the one who is pretty much like the shield of the franchise, right? Like think, I think back to the Steve Nash dynamic in Brooklyn right now, or like the thought of him potentially wanting to step away and not, not dealing with this anymore to use like other people's um, expressions of it. Like I think like the media aspect of the job and having to be the person answering all these questions about, are you trading James Harden? Is Ben Simmons going to play? Like it's, it's, it's one of the biggest jobs, honestly, that a head coach has to do. And it's something that I think fans and some, and people outside of the league don't often um, recognize that goes into every that, that's as much of the job as the X's and O's are I mean, being a, just a leader and like a boss and someone who's got to think about every assistant underneath you most of them want to either come for your seat or get another seat somewhere else or just move up one seat anywhere like you got to balance all the players in their minutes who not just for the optimization of your team, but like to try to keep them invested and in thinking that they're wanting, they're wanted there. And while they're also all balancing their own agendas and wanting to play to make their own money, like it's not just who's very smart about basketball, who can draw up a good ATL. There's so much more to the head coaching job. So um, a lot of that job, I think Mark Jackson is considered to be pretty good at. I think the stuff that would give me pause to hire him if I was running a team, and especially in the Sacramento situation, is the kind of like shadow operating us versus them stuff against the front office. There's the story about when he was a player with the Jazz, how he wanted to like stage a coup over John Stockton, right? <laughs> um, that type of stuff is what I think people – give credence to that is real um but also i would say the most pressing thing to me about like his his fitness as a coach and not not the leader public relations face aspect of it is he hasn't been in the game outside of being a color commentator since he was a head coach and you've seen a lot of guys like jason kidd who you know, went right from his playing days to coach of the Nets. That seemed to kind of blow up. The Bucks situation kind of blew up. Then he went and learned with the Lakers. And a lot of people were talking about how he – it seemed like – I thought it was kind of bullshit at the time, honestly. I'll be candid and talking about how he learned from Vogel and learned, learned how to change up his approach. And not just from Vogel, but just being a guy who was in it but not the front guy and, and, and observing and taking – different notes here and there and you look at what he's doing in Dallas right now. And now one of his assistants, Sean Sweeney's got an interview with Charlotte, like, 
Chauncey Billups wasn't a head coach first, but he spent a lot of time, it was at least one year, um, with the Clippers on their bench before, I think it was two years, if I'm not mistaken, before he got the Portland job. Um, I mean, it's just... Yeah, Ty Lue. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, yeah, to me, that's the, that's the pause I would have. There does seem to be a lot of ego involved there where he's only wanted to be considered for head coaching jobs again. Um, and there's other things too, like he wasn't, you know, he, he was talking up how Steph and Clay were the best shooting backcourt of all time. And he kind of, I think he gave up a Splash Brothers nickname, right? Yeah. And the Warriors, I think someone said to me yesterday the other day, were ranked 13th that year, his last year, um, in three-point attempts, like in the league. So um, I think that's kind of, I don't know, I'll wrap a bow on all that. Like, I, I, I think his, the discourse around him is somewhat warranted in certain degrees, but I also think he's kind of gotten a bit of a bad rap. But I also don't know if all those factors do create a general net positive for a franchise, I guess. Charlie, yeah, there was something going on with him and Festus Azili. I think he also I think he also thought Festus Azili had a wire like uh in the locker room and was recording him surreptitiously. Well, someone um, did do that. <laughs> so yeah, I think that, I think that did. Blame. But he was like accusing guys, and then and then there was like something about his minutes being tied to the fact that he he basically called Festus Azili a spy, if I remember something along those. There was a lot of paranoia, and and the interesting thing too about that is like I think some of the paranoia was warranted because it was pretty clear from what I I know going after the fact that that the Lake of Somewhere in the lake of brain trust, they were not they were not jiving with with Mark's we'll call it dogmatic approach to how life should be lived based on his religious ethos. And some of the people yeah. within the lake of family, you know, in the way that they chose to live their life, you know, it, Mark had been very anti on. Yeah, there was uh, some disagreements. From a lot, with a lot of people. I mean, the NBA is a very insulated place, right? Where not just from, I mean, the whole organization, but especially the traveling party. Like, you're with these guys and gals for a lot of time. You're, you're at practice. You're in the hotel. You're on the bus to the game. You're at the game. You're on the bus. You're back to the hotel or you're back to the flight. And then you're just in these random cities. Not random, obviously, the biggest, but. In, in, in the country, but you know, you're never there for any other reason besides like that's where the NBA decided it made sense for all the arenas for you to play there. Um, so you're just kind of there and you're with naturally, you're going to turn to the people that you're with to go grab a bite or whatever. Um, and like not an environment that's very conducive for like contesting beliefs and wanting to challenge people's religious ideologies. Right. Yeah, exactly. Do you think that there's real validity that um, like LeBron actually wants him to coach the Lakers? And is that a possibility to you? So, I mean, if you ask the most cynical and you're always carrying me here, I love it. If you, if you ask the most cynical NBA person, they'll say, 
LeBron just wants someone who is a figurehead who they can kind of like boss around and, you know, be their guy. So that's the most cynical take. The other take would be that like they do want someone like a Doc Rivers who is a player's player in the degree of like he will go to bat for you unless you're Ben Simmons after a big monumental game. Um, and uh, um, he will like take bullets and kind of be like a pro's pro and they don't practice ever and that type of thing. Like, I think the truth is somewhere in between where they do want a veteran coach who will have the kind of chutzpah and, and uh, cojones to like theoretically lead a team in a postseason environment, which I mean, Lakers people still maintain that if LeBron and AD are healthy, you know, they haven't, they haven't lost the playoff series. Right. So um, like, I do think that Mark Jackson checks a lot of boxes there. I don't think he's high on the list, um, but I think, and I also think like, I don't think the Lakers and clutch sports, let's say are like, really sitting down and having meetings like of what to do here anymore. I think the, the Russell Westbrook dynamic definitely changed a couple things there. I don't want to say too, too much because I don't really know too, too much definitively. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think that Mark Jackson is someone that LeBron would definitely like in that seat, but I think there are a handful of guys he'd like in that seat for various different reasons. Who do you think's the front runner there? Like, who makes the most sense in terms of like getability and desirability? I mean, for a while, I was really convinced it was going to be Doc. And yeah. as I wrote today, like, not as much optimism around the league, let's say, that like Doc will be not in Philly next year. The contract that he's got is super expensive. He's not going to walk away from like, $30 million guaranteed to go coach the Lakers where dirty secret is that the Lakers don't exactly flush with cash. I mean, it's kind right. of been a big, it's been a big theme throughout the winning time show. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's also a kind of a true element. that still plays a factor today where guys like Joe Sy and the Lakers who, and Steve Ballmer who made all their money in tech and are billions and billions of billionaires like the bus family made all their wealth after the Lakers purchase, like through the Lakers. They're not really like bankrolling all this stuff. And I don't, no one really, no one that I've talked to expects the Lakers to pay $8 million to a coach. I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know if they're going to be able to pry someone, you know, away from another team like they would like to. And there's another skeptic, cynical, pessimistic take that I've heard from people on the league is that the Lakers are slow playing their process because if they're the last job open and then, then there's no bidding war that they'll have to get into with another team. Again, that's what people have posed to me. I don't, I'm not saying that is definitively the case. Um, so with all that being said, like, honestly, I got no idea who the, who the likely outcome is right now. Cause no one really seems to, I, I, I really thought a name like Juwan Howard would have made sense until um, he hit a guy. No, until <laughs> uh, his kids are going there now. This is like a I joke. Also, <laughs> I know. And uh, <laughs> and his uh, I mean, I was told that 
LeBron's like trying to, if it already happened, and this is public info, forgive me, but I was told LeBron's already trying to figure out like visits for Bronny to go to Michigan. Not to, not to get him to go there, but to visit, um, whether unofficial or an official capacity, like they're kind of deciding whether or not to, how to do it that way. Um, so I don't think that's happening anymore. But I don't know. It's got to be someone who I think will be okay with some type of Byron Scott type situation at the end of Kobe's tenure where Byron came in at the 14-15 season on a two-year deal, which was the same length of um, Kobe's like final two-year contract. And he kind of knew – he was always obviously hoping there would be more, but he kind of knew it was only going to be a two-year run. Like, if LeBron – I mean, at this point, it seems like everything's trending towards LeBron signing this two-year over 38 max. That is what is the max he can sign for, um, which will add on another – two years after this other year that's already left on his deal. So that's a three-year window that I think aligns up with the length of Anthony Davis's contract. I think they're just going to hire someone who is on a three-year contract and let me ask, let me ask you rise this. it out in the sun. Yeah. Do you think, and I, I would imagine that Russell Westbrook being moved is a priority, but if for some reason that they either don't buy him out or they think they can maybe make it work, like, do you think Dan Tony? is an option given the fact that like he's he's known to squeeze more out of guys offensively that might be limited maybe i think i mean i think he's got a really good shot at the charlotte job so yeah he might not um he might not even be around um i don't also don't know like by the end of that bubble season, the word was that basically Mike D'Antoni, Harden, and Russ all didn't want to go back. I don't know if that was necessarily because of the other people, but I I just would say I would have pause. I'd have to ask some people to see if that would even if like because of that di- pers- interpersonal dynamic, if Mike would be the type would be the right guy to optimize Russ in that situation. Yeah, and I I remember when that trade went down during summer league. I remember talking to some people close to D'Antoni and that was the nail on the coffin for D'Antoni being like, all right, I'm out after this year. Like this is, he put on a brave face and said, we're, we're doing this to win a championship. But in his mind, he was like, how is this going to work? He's just the antithesis of a D'Antoni point guard. Like, yeah. <laughs> the reason why I think he's got a very good shot in Charlotte is, I mean, I'm about to have a call about this after we hang up here, but Defense was constantly something that I was told that Charlotte ownership, particularly Michael Jordan, was not really thrilled by um, with under James Borrego. And as I've written time and time again, um, I don't really know what more James Borrego could have done. I mean, he improved that team. He was so good, actually, like way better than I think the people are giving. Didn't he improve 10 games every year? Every year that – after they lost Kemba, um, yeah, which was always yeah, they're they're going to always take a step back that year, which got that and them losing all those games got them in that position to take Lanell in the first place. Shout out tanking, shout out Bill to lose. Um, but I think you know all the defensive questions aside, like if D'Antoni can really help Lamelo become a super efficient offensive player, even if he's even if D'Antoni is not the coach to take this team to like a true championship contending level like he could be someone who's there for three or four years who just like helps Lamelo get to the next 
stratosphere of NBA stardom and not in the off-court world. Obviously, Lamelo doesn't really need any help in that area. Um, but in terms of, you know, that dudeness, like, I think that's kind of what the logic is in terms of why he could um, really be the name in that Hornets vacancy, yeah. Marcus Smart out uh, tonight, by the way, for folks who are interested. Their defensive player of the year. Well, defensive player defensive of the year player of out. The year. Your community defensive player of the year. No fascinating <laughs> stuff, though. Like, super interesting. I'm, I can't wait to see. Coaching carousel is one of my favorite times of the year outside of, like, free agency and tampering. I mean, it's all good. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, good. December's good. October's <laughs> good. Like, but I love the I love the chaos of the end of the year, especially given the fact that, like, so much of it is, like, Game of Thrones where there's, you know, these family dynamics and, you know, all the different pillars of these ownership groups that have, different ethos, different financial guidelines, you know, how they've made their money, you know, and that, that all shapes what they do. And, uh, you know, I, I know it's the Lakers and I, I know that it's like the, the most glitzy and glammy team in the NBA, but it's also like one of the, the poorest, like the one of the most like janky ass family run, like duct tape type organizations, which is exactly like what you wouldn't want if you were LeBron James. Like if if you truly were all about winning and you're LeBron James, don't aggregate this, you would have gone to the Clippers and not the Lakers. <laughs> like Steve Ballmer's pockets, he would have done anything for you uh, and you could have still like made Space Jam. That would have been wild, honestly. I mean, they were trying to get Kawhi to the Lakers, obviously. That was very public. Um yeah, it's uh, we're definitely approaching my favorite time of the year. Um, the draft is my favorite time of the year. Yes, good stuff. As I've said, maybe on the show, maybe publicly, maybe I just say it privately. On um, with like free agency, right? There are teams that have certain needs. There are point guards on the point guard market, and teams looking for a point guard in the trade deadline. There's teams looking for wings and all that type of stuff. But sometimes a sign doesn't happen or a trade doesn't happen. In the draft, there literally is an order one through sixty. Someone is being picked at every single pick, whether there's a trade happening there or not. There will be someone selected. And every single person involved in the NBA, from coaches to executives to agents to players to sneaker reps to runners to whoever, they all want to know what's going to happen. And that, to me, is the most fun. So, and we get to bet to- on the NBA now. We get to bet on the draft, just like we did on the NFL <laughs> draft, which will be it'll be awesome. I'm I'm looking forward as a Portland Trailblazer fan, as you know. Like, oh, by the way, the Pelicans just screwed us. Like, you already know, but like, wow, oh, yeah. that was just that I read, could I not have gone. A long thing about that. Last one before we go. Okay. Um, would you trade the number six pick for Jeremy Grant? No. Okay. There. I don't think he's worth that, and I also wonder whether he would come to us in free agency in a year from now. Very fair point. Like, I think if you can get – and we don't even know it's six right now, right? The ping pong balls haven't hit. Like, we could end up the Toronto Raptors or in a better situation than, you know, our pick suggests. We could luck into the number two pick. Like, that's not out of the question. And then you take Paolo Bencaro and you you run and you cheer. (laughs) (laughs) And I think Paolo Bencaro is going to end up being a better pro than Jeremy Grant. He very well could be. Jeremy Grant, second-round pick. Paul Ventura seemed to be top five. Krister Kick, 
number one in my heart. I hope everyone listening as well. Thank you for joining me as always. I really appreciate it. I can't wait to do it again soon. Let's talk. Also, we'll figure out what's happening offline next time we see each other. We're trying to another fourth round of trying to schedule a time in New York City. It might end up just being like Vegas or Chicago or some other place that we'll see each other. We'll hang. It'll happen. We'll hang. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. See you.